Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. The young tragedian Agathon is going to give a speech almost at the end of all the speeches at the symposium. It's supposed to be the second to last, although it turns out to be the third to last, in which he is going to praise love. And he says that everybody else has sort of fallen down on the job. They haven't actually managed to praise love. Now he is going to do it the right way. And he's going to give this very well-crafted, rhetorically structured speech, which contains an argumentative structure, including making a central claim and then providing backing for that claim through a number of sub-arguments. Now he's doing so in such a way that you can't automatically view them as arguments because he's such a great rhetor. Interestingly enough, he's not going to give a tragic speech or anything reflecting his, his skill as a tra tragedian. Rather, he is going to give a speech that shows that he can really put together rhetorically crafted speeches. So there's two main arguments, two main claims that are being given. One is that love is, in fact, the loveliest or the most beautiful of the gods. So love is the, the most kalos, the most fine, the most noble. And the other is going to be that love is the best, morally speaking. So we've got the two sides of Kalon and Agathon that go along with this. It's also reflected in his name, which turns out to be a happy coincidence, by the way. And there's four main lines of argument that he's going to give to make this assertion that love is, in fact, the loveliest or the most beautiful of the gods. He's going to begin by talking about love being the youngest of the gods. Now, when you see these arguments, try to appreciate first that he's actually providing an argument, and then think about whether these are actually good arguments or whether counterexamples can be given. And remember that this is given in the middle of a flowing speech in which there's a continuous flow of rhetoric going on. So the audience members can't be expected to, to say, you know, hold their hands up and say, well, what about this? There are a few places where you can point out some problems with this youngest, also with the most delicate, and so forth. But let's see where he's going. He says, love runs away from time, from the ravages of time, from the aged. What does he mean by that? He means that as people age, they become less lovely. Doesn't mean that they love less. It means that love is not being directed towards them. Instead, love prefers that which is similar to him as a god, that is youths. He's eternally young, and so he prefers young people. And, you know, we see something like this with the whole notion of trophy wives, or I suppose trophy husbands, there's another name for it that's a little bit boy toys, where older people who are now successful throw over their mate who's no longer as physically attractive, in part because they're not as young, and youth is identified with physical attractiveness, even though, you know, it's a rather arbitrary thing. This is, you know, what goes on in our time. It was also going on in the time of the Greeks. And there was this sense that as age takes its toll, one becomes less beautiful, less lovely, less capable of being the object of attraction, the object of eros. 
The other thing that he says, which is quite interesting, is a mythological justification. He says love is the youngest of the gods because clearly if love was on the scene, all these other things that happen in these stories, which aren't really all that believable anyway, but let's just assume for the moment that they are, all these things that the gods and the titans did wouldn't have really happened. That was under the realm of necessity, of compulsion. What does he mean by this? Well, he gives a few examples. You know, a prime example of this is Kronos castrating his father, Uranos, and taking power. This is the reign of the Titans, the before the Olympian gods. Uranos is one of the first of the gods, and gay, earth, Uranos means sky, gay means earth. They mate, and they bring forth the Titans. And some of these things are just monsters, you know, like the hundred-handed ones or the Cyclopses. Prometheus, Epimetheus, they're not that battle. Epimetheus is kind of a dumb guy. But Kronos actually takes charge by not only deposing his father, but by castrating him. He throws the remnants of what he's cut off into the sea, and that's where Aphrodite comes out in the old Aphrodite story that we saw with Pausanias. So this is not nice stuff. And then Kronos himself, if you know the, the story about the Greek gods, he swallows all of his children as they are born. Zeus gets away because his, his mother, Rhea, Kronos' wife, by this time is totally sick of seeing all of her children eaten up by their fathers. So what he does, or what she does, is takes a, a rock and puts it in the, the, you know, the baby clothes and he swallows the whole thing up and he thinks that he's got his baby taken care of. Meanwhile, these kids are living in his belly for a long time. Zeus grows up, gets them to throw up all these other gods, like his brothers Hades and Poseidon, and his sisters Hestia, Demeter, and Hera. And there's a war between the Titans and the gods. You get the point, right? Lots of conflict, lots of bloodshed, lots of craziness going on. If love was around, Agathon argues, none of this would have happened. Why not? Everyone would have gotten along, because that's what love does. So those are the two things supporting that love is the youngest of the gods. Then he goes on and he says, what's more, love is the most delicate. It's the most malakos. It has the greatest degree of malakia in the Greek, which, by the way, is going to come to mean weakness or, or vice later on with people like Aristotle. But in this case, he's talking about it in terms of delicacy, in terms of being what we would say precious in a way. How do we know this is the case? Well, again, he resorts to a mythological reference. He says that, that love actually avoids whatever is hard or rough. So love doesn't step on the ground, for example, you know, walking on gravel or anything like that. And unlike Ate, the goddess of destruction, who is so dainty that she walks on the heads of mortals, love walks on something that's even softer, because heads are kind of hard, right? Anytime you've, like, banged your head against somebody else, you know that's the case. Love walks on the soul, or it's translated in some, the hearts of men and gods, because this is the softest part of us. And so that's how we know that love is the most delicate. Love is the most dainty. It dwells in us, in the parts of us that are not hard. This actually kind of fits in well with this notion of love being supple, love being flexible, love being able to get in the nooks and crannies. Love avoids the hard things, but it can go around the hard things and get into the softness of the soul. And the evidence that he provides in the middle of the speech for this suppleness of love is several different points. He says love turns us in endless convolutions. It spins us around, right? 
Well, you think about what, what it's like to be infatuated with somebody. That makes some good sense. Love gets us to do some crazy things. That's pretty metaphorical language. And then he talks about love entering into our souls secretly without us actually knowing it. This is a sign that love really does have, we might say, the dexterity to get through all of the obstacles that are set up. So the person, you know, we've all seen these movies or TV shows or plays where somebody says, I'm not going to fall in love with anybody. I'm writing off men or women forever. Just going to concentrate on work. And what's the first thing that happens? Of course, they meet somebody and love sneaks in despite their best efforts to keep it at bay. Well, that's because love can enter into our souls secretly. It can also lead when he chooses. We can't control love. We can't make a, a prison of our hearts and keep him within there. Then he also talks about love's elegance. And that's a way of translating a composite Greek word. The monusene makes it something like a attribute, you know, like a dikaiosune is justice or sophrosune is a temperance. Eo means good. Then the, the schema, you know, we get the word schema from that. And it literally means like how things are set up or arranged. So eo schema means like a goodness of arrangement. So we translate it with elegance. We might think about it in terms of grace. Being well put together is another thing that we sometimes say. We don't have an exact translation for it, but it's one of those fuzzy Greek terms that people probably meant different things by it in any cases. At any rate, love has this, right? Love is well set up. So that means that love is going to be most supple. Why would that lead to love being supple or flexible? Well, think about it. When the body is well arranged and all the parts are in their proper order, that allows you to be more flexible. If you've got bones that are kind of out of joint or something, you lose what we call range of motion. You lose your flexibility. So all of this supports love being most supple. Now he brings it to a close with these interesting reflections on flowers. You know, we tend to think of flowers as being a romantic thing of, you know, the modern period. But no, flowers were associated with love throughout these developments of, of culture, including back in the ancient world. So he talks about love's beauty of color, beauty of hue, beauty of, of shade, something that's actually, in many respects, quite physical, all right, quite sensuous. And he says wherever flowers are found, or, you know, the scent, the odor of flowers. So imagine, you know, you could also think of perfume as well, and unguents and stuff like that. Their love is going to be found. And where things are old and decaying and rotten, there won't be any love there because there's no loveliness there. So that love is attracted to, to what's growing, to what's ripening, to what is even just budding, what is coming forth. This would partly be why love prefers the young, because the young are, so to speak, all potential right there on the surface, you know, waiting to come up. Not like, say, you know, a 45-year-old body, which has wrinkles and your ears keep growing and your nose keeps growing and all these sorts of things that we talk about, right? That's mature state. And then we have our bodily senescence as well. Love avoids that sort of thing. Love doesn't like the old people. Love likes, in both people and in nature, what is either at its peak or on its way to its peak. So all of these are reasons... Agathon is giving for why love is the loveliest or the most beautiful of all of the gods. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. 
You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.